Thanks, Tim. Let's pray again. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words. We thank you for this great scripture we've just read. We thank you for the truth of how you have made the body. Uh, many members and one head, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that as we look into your word, as we look at Ephesians 4, would you teach us about ourselves as a church? Would you make us more like Christ corporately together? Help us to understand how you would have us live and be together as a church family. Lord, we thank you for the word of God. We pray that you would open our minds to understand what you have revealed in it. And we pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning I'd like to begin my message by asking a question. Uh, the question is this, why do people often fail to give themselves to ministry in their local church? Uh, that is, what keeps people from ministry? Uh, perhaps you're familiar with what is referred to sometimes as the 80-20 rule, which is commonly applied to churches. The idea is that 20% of the church parishioners tend to be the ones doing 80% of the ministry. It's the 20-80 rule. And we ask, well, why is that? What keeps more people from ministering in the church? And this past week, I spent some time considering that question, and I jotted down six reasons. There are six reasons, six common reasons, maybe, that people fail to engage themselves in the ministry in their local church. And, but just quickly, before I go into those six reasons, I thought a couple of disclaimers were in order before I even began. And the first disclaimer is this. By, by beginning my message this way, I'm in no way saying that there's anyone in particular who's not serving in our church. By this, I mean I'm not pointing at anyone with this introduction. Uh, I would argue that we as a church are probably an exception to that 80-20 rule in general. The vast majority of, of you are serving. Uh, so again, I'm just not directing this at anyone in particular, but I would say if the shoe fits, we could wear it, right? So I have no one in mind. So that's my first disclaimer. And the second is this. Uh, a second disclaimer is if, as I ask what keeps people from serving in their local church, the population that I really have in mind is those who are committed Christians and Christians who have committed themselves to a particular local church. To use a biblical term, we could call them the members of the church. Uh, my question then is what keeps committed church members from serving in their church? In so doing, I'm not referring to people who may be attending church just to explore Christianity, those who are not yet Christians. I do not have them in mind. I hope that they would just be coming and learning and learning about the Lord Jesus Christ and learning about the gospel. And so I'm not re referring to non-Christians, and nor am I just referring to newcomers to a church, that is, Christians who are relatively new to the church. I think there's wisdom in newcomers uh, simply sitting and learning about the church, learning how the church functions, what the church believes, getting to know the people. So I believe there's wisdom in that. And as a church, we actually appreciate that when people take the time to get to know us and ex explore what we believe, understand our doctrine before they formally commit themselves to our church. And so that means if you're relatively new here this morning, uh, please don't feel like I'm pressuring you to get involved or anything like that or to begin ministering. I, I'm not in any way doing that. Again, my question is, what keeps those members or those who have formally committed themselves to the church, what keeps them from serving? And this morning, I have those six reasons, and this is in no way an exhaustive list, but six, just six common reasons that I've thought of. And the first is this. People are just too busy, too busy. 
Perhaps the demands of normal work life really precludes them from involving themselves in the ministry of the church. Uh, and I'm not condoning that per se or saying that really any of these six reasons are valid necessarily, but I'm just saying this is a common reason that people would not be involved in the ministry of the church. A second reason would be involvement in other ministries. Perhaps someone is engaged in ministry, it's just outside and disconnected from the church entirely. Perhaps they are more obligated to various parachurch ministries, and that's where they spend their time ministering to other Christians and such, is in parachurch ministries disconnected from the church. That's possible. A third reason just could be physical realities, physical difficulties. Uh, We might think of things like handicaps or whatever it may be, particular seasons of suffering that God has allowed into their life, so for that particular season, they're not able to minister or serve in the church. That's That's a very real possibility. So that's just physical realities of life. A fourth reason would be spiritual laziness or indifference, which is really, we just might call it selfishness. Uh, which I think we'd have to put this one in the category of sin. This would be when people desire to serve themselves more than they desire to serve others and follow their God-given responsibility. So that's number four, spiritual laziness. Number five, they may not be engaged in ministry just because they're simply unaware of the need. They're unaware of the need or they're unaware of the obligation to minister. This could ultimately be a theological error that they hold. Perhaps they're convinced that it's the pastor's job to do all of the ministry. Perhaps that's what they believe. That's the pastor is the one to do all of the ministry, or maybe the elders and the deacons, but they themselves are not to do the ministering. They're to receive or be recipients of the ministry. And maybe they assume that without an official title in the church that they cannot serve or should not serve. And so that's another maybe plausible reason why someone might not serve. They're just unaware of the need or the obligation to serve. And a sixth reason might be a lack of equipping, a lack of equipping. We must admit as church leaders that occasionally members do not engage in ministry because they're not, they're simply unequipped. They don't know how to minister. They have not been taught the word of God and trained in ministry, so therefore able to do the ministry. And this would obviously be the fault of the shepherds and not the sheep. They could just be unequipped as a sixth reason. So there you have it, six reasons why people fail to give themselves to the ministry of the local church. But this question that I've been asking, and really all these answers assume something. That is that they assume that it's Christ's will or design for them to be ministering in the church. That it's God's will for them to be active and serving in the church, which is a conviction that I hope you personally develop. That's a conviction that I have, and I hope that you would develop. That, that is, that every member, every committed person to the local church would be actively ministering in the church. In that sense, we might call the church, or a healthy local church, in every member ministry. In, in every member ministry, where we're really, in this sense, flipping that 80-20 principle on its head where the vast majority of the people who are committed to the church are very active in ministry, that they are serving, that they are engaging one another with the word of God, that every member is actively ministering. And I think this is Christ's desire for the local church. Christ desires that every member, every committed Christian to the local church be ministering to others inside the church and outside the church. And this is the particular emphasis that I'd like you to see 
this morning as once again we turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, if you have a Bible with you, I'd invite you to turn over there to Ephesians chapter 4. Last Sunday, we focused on verses 11 through 13, and this morning we'll pick up at, at verse 14. But please follow along with me as I read chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. Verse 11 says this, And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. You recall that last week I brought us to Ephesians 4 for the purpose of really clarifying and sharpening our understanding of the purpose of the local church. I wanted to remind us of Christ's plan for the church, how Christ has designed the church to function. And as I noted last week, I believe Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 give us the most detailed description of Christ's plan for the local church that we find in our New Testament. In my opinion, anyone who would desire to set out to plan a church or even to serve as a pastor or an elder ought to have this passage down, ought to have this passage mastered. But more than that, I believe this is a passage that every believing Christian should be aware of and know about as members of the local church, as those who would involve themselves in the local church. They need to know this passage. You all need to know this passage. And as I mentioned last Sunday, this morning, it is again my prayer that Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 would really become emblazoned in your mind as forever associated with the purpose of the local church. So that Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 becomes sort of the dominant theme or the grid in your thinking about what the church is that shapes how you think about the church. And if you were to set out to evaluate a particular church, the health of a particular church, be it our church or any church, that you'd be evaluating it through the lens of this passage. So to that end, last Sunday we began to consider this topic, and we set out and we to see five elements of Christ's blueprint for a healthy church found in Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. Five elements, and last week we considered the first three, the first three elements, and we'll just touch on those quickly, what we saw last week. The first element of Christ's blueprint for a healthy church was Christ's gifts, gift of leaders. Now look with me at verse 11 to see this, Christ's gift of leaders. It says in, in Ephesians 4.11, he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. And we spent significant time last week explaining how these first two categories, apostles and prophets, are no longer active today. We believe those two offices are not held today. In that sense, there are no apostles 
of the Lord Jesus Christ living today, and nor are there any prophets living today. And I, and I recognize that there are people who call themselves those things, but I don't think they're, they really fit the biblical description of those two offices. Those two offices were foundational for the local church, as Ephesians 2.20 says, and they're no longer being given by Christ to the church. But those next three categories, evangelists and pastors and teachers, are still gifts that Christ is giving to the church. Evangelists, those who are gifted in evangelism. Christ is giving some individuals, I'm sure some of you are gifted with the gift of evangelism, and you are very gifted at doing that very thing, proclaiming the gospel to others. And then he gives us pastors, or we might call them elders, or shepherds. Shepherds and also teachers. There's, there's continuity between those groups because we know all pastors must be qualified to teach the word of God. So pastors are teachers, but Christ gives pastors and teachers and evangelists to the church. In an ongoing sense, Christ is gifting these gifted leaders to the church. And so this was our first point last week, Christ's gifts of leaders to the church in verse 11. And this brings us to verse 12, which, we could, which I just called Christ's plan summarized in verse 12. It really, we just see his plan summarized here in this verse. Look at it with me. We'll back up again. Verse 11, he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the service to the building up of the body of Christ. Okay, so Christ gave these gifted leaders for the purpose of equipping the saints. Equipping, we spent some time looking at that word last week. It, it means to mend, it means to correct something, it means to restore, it can mean to prepare. Jesus uses it in the sense of training. So, so that's the elders, pastors, evangelist job to train the, the saints of the church. We could call those the Christians, the holy ones. That's just the Christians. It's the church leader's job to equip the saints to what end? The work of the service, the work of ministry. So then it's clear that who is doing the ministry in the church, it ought to be the church members themselves, the saints themselves. They're carrying out the work of the ministry. They're trained to do ministry by the elders, but then they go on and carry out the work of the ministry. That is key. And all of this results in the building up of the body of Christ. As the elders equip the saints for the work of the ministry and they carry out the ministry, the whole body is built up or edified in Christ. And again, last week we stressed that this ministry both has an internal function and an external function. The external function is the proclamation of the gospel to the watching world. It's proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ to outsiders. The internal function is just the, the ministering to one another. It's the discipling or, or serving one another, encouraging one another. It includes things like counseling one another or teaching one another, ministering to children in the church, ministering to all ages. It's, it includes planning and leading and, and interpreting scripture and praying and exhorting and rebuking and discipling and all of these things is what the church body is to be about, to build up the body of Christ, to strengthen it. Let me ask, well, we also looked last week, at how does this equipping occur? How do the leaders of the church carry out this work? And you'll recall that we turn to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, a, a key cross-reference to understand equipping. When there it says that all scripture is inspired by God 
and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good word. Every good work, that word equipped being our key word. The word of God equips us for good works. We could say that the word of God equips us for ministry, which we have as we compare Ephesians 4.12 and 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. That would, we'd come away with a clear understanding that in order for church leaders to equip the saints, they must be using and sort of deploying the word of God. The word of God would be central in all of their equipping efforts, teaching, explaining, kind of bringing to light everything in Scripture so that people would be trained for ministry because the Scripture itself is what trains us for ministry. It equips us for every good work. And just practically speaking, we talked about, well, how do we set out to do that here at Valley Bible Church? How are we going to equip you? That's our responsibility here. And we described three things. We said what we're doing right here is the Sunday morning preaching of the word. The Sunday morning teaching of God's word is meant to equip you to be faithful and effective in ministry. Secondly, we talked about Sunday school, and it also included midweek Bible studies. All of these are our ways that we're seeking to equip you all in the word of God so that you'll be able to minister effectively. So this was verse 12, and our second element here was just Christ's plan summarized. And this brings us to the scope of the project, or we might, where here we see how long are we to be about this project, and we find that in verse 13, the scope. And there, look at verse 13 with me. It says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So we're all to be about this work until we all attain something, until we all arrive at three different things there in verse 13. It's, you can find it again by looking for the word to. To the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. That's the first thing. That just means that we're all striving to grow up in our understanding of the truth of Scripture. We're sort of coming to it with a unified understanding of sound doctrine. Then we also seek to arrive at or attain to a mature man. That's the second thing we're striving to attain to. That's maturity. And then third is related. And to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That's our third aim there. It's Christ-likeness. We're all seeking to grow up into Christ-likeness in verse 13. And so we've seen here, this is Christ's gift in verse 11. Then we have Christ's plan summarized in verse 12. Then we see the really the scope of the project in verse 13. And now this morning, we come to the results, which is really the fourth element of Christ's blueprint for a healthy church. If, if we do and we follow the plan of Christ, this is the result that we find here. So this is our fourth element, the results I'm calling it. Look at verse 14 with me. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Notice just here the opening clause of verse 14. As a result, as a result, there it is, as a result of Christ giving leaders to the church so that they would equip the saints, so that the saints would carry out the ministry, these two things come about. 
And we can identify the two results here in Paul's mind by just looking at the, the main verbs in this section. There's one in verse 14 and there's one in 15. In verse 14 is, we are no longer to be children. That's the result. And then the second is in verse 15, we are to grow up. And so maybe we just summarize those two things. In verse 14, it's collective theological stability. That's the first result, collective theological stability. And the second is collective spiritual growth found in verse 15. And so we'll just take one of these one at a time, looking at verse 14, collective theological stability. So as a result of the elders working to equip each member in sound doctrine and Christ-like maturity, the collective theological stability of the church is bolstered, meaning that really rock-solid convictions are developed in the life of the sheep, in the life of just normal people in the church, normal Christians. They are growing sound doctrine. And therefore, we are no longer to be children, the text says. And it's important just to point out here in Paul's statement that if he's telling us that we're no longer to be children, what it's saying is that when we came into the world as a Christian, as we were birthed into the kingdom, we were born as spiritual children or spiritual infants. In this sense, we all have the same starting point, a spiritual childhood. No one is born into the kingdom and automatically starts eating the meat of sound doctrine and walking in biblical wisdom. Everyone shares the same starting point. Yes, I know it's true. I've met Christians who believe that they were able to just skip through all of that, but that's not true. Everyone starts at the same point, spiritual infancy, and nonetheless has we will see in a moment, it's God's intention, his desire for us, that we're all growing to maturity, that we're moving from spiritual infancy to spiritual adulthood. You'll recall that the author of Hebrews rebuked rebuke the Hebrew Christians uh, in Hebrews 5, cha- uh, verse 12, chapter 5, verse 12. He rebuked them for remaining infants too long. He said for, to them, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. He says, for everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So it's the person who's sort of graduated from the elementary principles of the oracles of God, the person who's advanced from a milk-only diet, this person, because of practice, has had their senses trained to discern good and evil. And this is the same effect that we find in Ephesians 4.14. He says, we're no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by the wind of doctrine, every wind of doctrine. So the idea is we should not remain as children. You're no longer to be children. And we recognize that there are some Christians who seem to never grow. They just stay the same their entire life. They're resistant to growing. They're just sort of perpetual children in the faith, always in spiritual immaturity. They still need milk and they can't digest solid food. And this is a problem, clearly, in this passage. 
But we ask, well, why is that a problem? Why is it a problem when people do not grow? Well, Paul gives us two. There are really two, and I think that he identifies two main tendencies in spiritual children. Uh, he says the, the first, uh, we might call as spiritual instability. Paul refers to it as being tossed here and there by waves. You see, immature Christians are like, sort of like a small rowboat that's just being tossed about in a, in a great sea storm, just thrown about up and down with every, every wave that comes along. And in that sense, the spiritual infant or the spiritual child just bounces from one position to the next, one theological fad to the next. They're never rooted in any theological convictions that last for any, for any great amount of time. And just for a moment, consider how this is generally true of young children. Uh, surely in your life you've had plenty of interaction with children to appreciate Paul's metaphor here. How quickly a child can change his mind. How quickly he can go from smiling to crying. And we know children are creatures of just wide emotional swings. Ever-changing impulses seem to just dictate their constitution in life. They lack self-control and are given to the immediate demands of whatever their flesh or whatever their heart is desiring in that particular moment. The only way we know to gain self-control is through discipline, and yet children hate discipline. They, they hate that. They resist it. And so the only, way to, the only way for them to be growing is what they do not want to do themselves, growing in discipline. And so the instability in children also has sort of excessive and even violent changes of opinion. One moment they may hate something, and then the next minute they love that very same thing. With my own children, I recognize this around the dinner table. When, when some food is placed before them, and by physical, physical examination, the child assumes, oh, I cannot like this. This is not good for me. I cannot eat this. But then if forced by the parents to take a bite, which is certainly resisted the whole time, after the will of the parent finally succeeds and the child makes the food into his mouth, the child then realizes, oh, this is good. I like this. And then he begins to eat it and consume it quickly. They've changed opinions drastically. And I, I see this in other areas as well. For example, one minute, our children may be begging to go outside. And so we load up their winter clothes, putting, them all, putting all their clothes on, and then when they're fully assembled, something changes in their mind. A, a flip is switched, and now they don't want to go outside. They're convinced it's bad for them to go outside. And so almost to the point of tears, they're now resisting to go outside, even though just a moment before, they desperately wanted to go outside. And this is what spiritual children are also like. Little self-control. Ever-changing directions in life. Always something new. Theological swings from one end of the spectrum to the other. In one moment, they hold one view dogmatically. They're just certain this is correct. And then they perceive a fallacy in their view, and they swing over to the other end of perspective, or other end of the spectrum, and then they hold that new view equally dogmatically as they held the first view. This is how spiritual children behave. They're, they're tossed about like a, a wave at sea. And the second tendency of spiritual children that Paul highlights is it's a, it's a spiritual liability to be misled or deceived. Paul writes that spiritual children are carried about by every wind of doctrine. And again, just consider the state of children. I, I think we can understand why this is true as we think about children. 
For one, children are naturally ignorant. Uh, they come into this world just lacking the knowledge that would guard them from error. Furthermore, we know that children like novelty. They're prone to enjoy whatever is new. A child may be playing with its favorite toy, favorite toy but if you suddenly just introduce to him something new, that old toy is quickly forgotten and disregarded, thrown out of its hand. You see, the childish mind and mentality are fond of and craves the novel, which is related to another cause of the children's proclivity to being deceived. Children love entertainment and excitement. This is why children love cartoons and television generally. They, they love the excitement of the changing scenes before them. They, they love the simple plot lines. Children love to be entertained. And spiritual children are no different. They love to be entertained as well, which makes them incredibly susceptible to error, and to theological error, which I think really provides us great insight into the state of the American church, broadly speaking, today. We love to be entertained. But Paul's point is here that we are to no longer be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. There's men who are seeking to trick us with false doctrine, craftiness in deceitful scheming, coming up with errors that they know are errors and using them to deceive us. So Christian men and women who are not grounded in biblical doctrine are then easily susceptible to, what, to theological errors of evil men. Evil men who twist the scripture and distort the truth. And, and just notice that there's two, type of, two types of people who hold to false doctrine there in verse 14. Now the first is those who know it's false, and they're promoting it and spreading false lies. We see that there. But secondly, it's those who are just have bought into those false lies unknowingly. They're just being tossed about like the wave at sea. They're, they're unaware that they've become captives to theological error. And Paul is here calling us to be different. He says the evangelists and the pastors and the teachers are to be equipping the saints so that the saints can be engaged in ministry so that the entire body is built up in the truth and safeguarded from any theological fad that might come their way. And examples of Christians being taken by theological errors are really just all too prevalent today. I mean, just in the last two years, we've seen some in the American church advocating the false doctrine of social justice. We've seen others advocating Marxist critical theories. They're having been adopted and even to some seminary curriculums are adopting some of these errors. We've seen the doctrine of the church been thoroughly, has been thoroughly attacked with many churches going completely online as if a church can be a church without a physical gathering together. We see the, the Bible's clear teaching of the sin of homosexual, homosexuality under assault today. Many mainstream voices have adopted and advocated unbiblical gender roles in the church. And for every theological fad that we have today and every false teaching, there's just a stream of churches who have embraced those things, embracing these deceitful schemes of men, as Paul would refer to them. But thankfully here, Christ's design for the church has really a built-in safeguard for spiritual 
infancy and for theological instability. And again, this is that first result of a healthy ministry. That first result is collective theological stability. The entire church growing in sound doctrine. And this brings us to the second outcome, which I'm calling collective spiritual growth. And this is really related to the first in theological maturity. This is, which that first one came in a negative warning. He says, we're no longer to be children. The second one is a positive affirmation of a direction to pursue. Look at verse 15 there in your Bibles with me. He says, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. So here the main result here of this passage in verse 15 is growing up. We are to grow up. That's the main idea here. We are to grow up in every way, in every respect, into the head who is Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to grow up into him. The apostle Peter commands us to do this very thing. 2 Peter 3.18 says this. Peter says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Understand that each one of us is commanded through Peter and ultimately by God to be growing in the faith. Which means if we're failing to grow spiritually, if we're growing stagnant in our Christian lives, then we're walking in disobedience to the will of God. We're commanded to grow. We should be growing. And growing in every conceivable way, growing in maturity, growing in Christ-likeness. And verse 15 also tells us how we're to be doing this, or, or the means by which this is accomplished. It's the first part of the verse. We could say, by speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up. It's by speaking the truth in love, we grow up. We are to grow up. And by speaking the truth in love, this is how God has designed the church to grow. So this makes this phrase really important. What does it mean to speak the truth in love? And if we just look at that first part, speaking the truth, we might think, well, that just means not telling lies, just saying things that are true. But it means more than that. Obviously, we should avoid falsehood in our speech. We should avoid telling lies, of course. But there's more to this idea. It might be better rendered in the sense of holding to the truth in love, holding to the truth in love. But even that isn't quite fully capturing the idea because there's a definite aspect of sort of verbal communication in this verse. It's, it's speaking the truth in love. The best way I might be able to render it is this, confessing the truth in love. We're confessing the truth in love. The idea is that we have embraced the truth of the gospel and sound doctrine. We, we're holding to it in our own lives and that we speak it out loud in our corporate gatherings. We talk about it in our fellowship together. As we meet together and just enjoy a cup of coffee, we're talking about the principles of sound doctrine and how they relate to our lives. We're reminding each other of the truth. We're sort of echoing the truths that we hear again and again to one another in the church. This means we're just exhorting and encouraging and counseling and spurring one another on with the truth of God's words. We're really living our lives in light of the truth that we all believe together. From verse 14, we can see how, how important it is to have this sound doctrine. And Paul's admonition here is that we should be embracing and discussing the truths of Scripture all the time. And sort of in our lives together, we should be constantly professing and possessing the truth. 
to use a, maybe a secular term from today, we might say that the, the culture of our church life together would be one of just constantly confessing the truth to one another, constantly talking about the truth, constantly talking about how the word of God impacts our daily living. And then we see that it's speaking the truth in love. And those last two little words need to be stressed, in love. See, it seems that Paul is well aware that there will be some Christians who have the innate ability to hold to the truth in ways that are less than loving. This is a strange paradox that exists in the lives of many Christians and, and even many sound churches. As people come to sound doctrine, perhaps after years of embracing theological error, they now begin to wield the truth in harsh or critical ways. They begin to wield the truth, honestly, like a two-by-four. They arrogantly beat people over the head with it. In sort of an abrasive manner, they're quick to really drop the hammer at even the slightest whiff of theological error. I'm sure you've encountered people like this, as I have. It's in a desire to the hold to the truth and defend the truth, they end up being quite unkind and, and unloving. Pastor and commentator John Stott commented on this phenomenon. I thought this was good. He said this, Thank God there are those in the, there are those in the contemporary church who are determined at all costs to defend and uphold God's revealed truth. But sometimes they are conspicuously lacking in love. When they think they smell heresy, their nose begins to twitch, their muscles ripple, and, at the, and the light of battle enters their eye. They seem to enjoy nothing more than a fight, end quote. I have known people like that. I mean, I think there's probably been times in my life when I've been like that. This, is, this characterizes some Christians who have come to the truth and now wield it in a way that's less than lo loving. Uh, as we've already acknowledged here, it's paramount that the truth of Scripture be held in, in the church. We must have we must have the truth, but it needs to be held in such a way that is done with a heart that is tender and compassionate towards one another, that understands that people have feelings and spirit, they're in a place of spiritual progress and we need to give them time and be gentle with them. As commentator Clinton Arnold has stated, sometimes believers can be so passionate about ensuring fidelity to right doctrine, that they can develop a critical and mean spirit that is destructive to community life, end quote. And I think destructive is the right word. Truth-filled words that lack love are a danger to the church. Of course, we would acknowledge that there's an equal and opposite, even maybe more deadly error on the opposite side of the spectrum. Loving words that lack truth are a deadly error. Again, Arnold writes, quote, Christians can sometimes be so committed to loving one another that they forget that the Christian community is founded on a common set of convictions that ardently need to be maintained and confessed, end quote. So we'd say doctrine in the life of the church is really paramount, but an increasing awareness of sound doctrine should be accompanied with a growth in love. So we must strive to confess the truth to one another in love. Speak God's word to each other. Remind one another of the truths of scripture, but doing so in a way that is loving and gentle and kind. And so just maybe as a prayer, our prayer for us would be that as we grow in theological convictions, we would also be growing in our love for one another, growing in Christ-likeness. 
In this sense, I'm reminded of 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25, where Paul writes to Timothy, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. I think that we need to be kind to all, gentle, patient. And so the, may the fruit of our sound doctrine be evident in the fruit of the Spirit, which is displayed in our lives. And so now, as we've seen the twin results of a, the equipping efforts of the leaders of the church, when the saints do the ministry, they're, they're growing up into collective theological stability, and then secondly, collective spiritual growth is occurring in the church. We come to the final point or the final elements of Christ's blueprint for the church. And I'm calling it just the internal process, the, the internal process, the internal process of how the local church is built up or edified, which is really the goal of this entire passage. Look again, we'll back up to verse 15. But speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. There's really three things I want you to see about this internal process of church growth. The first is just those two little words that begin the sentence. From whom? From whom? These two little words play an important role in this section. They indicate that the source of all spiritual growth in the church is Christ. It's from Christ. It's from him. From whom? We, we see here that Christ is the head of the church, which means that Christ is the ultimate authority in the life of the church. He governs the church through his word. And additionally, we've seen that he also gifts leaders to the church. But beyond that, he's also supplying the church with the needed grace for spiritual growth. He is supplying them. He's sort of the fountainhead which kind of springs forth grace to really activate and effectuate all of our workings and strivings to become more like Christ. He, he's empowering all of those. You see, we're called to invest in our own spiritual growth and invest in others' spiritual growth, but ultimately Christ is the one who's empowering all of our efforts and really making them effectual. So in other words, we would say here that we don't, grow ourselves. We don't sanctify ourselves. God is the one who sanctifies us. And particularly here, Christ is the one who sanctifies us. But this also does not mean that we're passive in our spiritual growth. It's not like we can say, well, just let go and let God, and I'll, I'll be growing if I just do nothing. And no, you must be active in your spiritual growth. I mean, just for one verse to write down, consider Philippians 2, 12, and 13. Philippians 2, 12, and 13. There Paul commands the church, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Meaning, put your salvation to work. Work it out. Make your salvation work for you. Work out your salvation for, with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
even though he's commanding us to work out our salvation, he says, recognize it's God who is at work in you both to will, that means causing you to desire to grow, and empowering all your efforts. It's God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we invest, we, we are active in our pursuit of spiritual growth, we are investing, we are laboring, we're obeying all the commands of scripture, but we're also recognizing that as we put forth energy, it is God who is sanctifying us by his word. It's God working in us. And this requires that, again, this would maybe lead to our second thing here, the second thing I'd like you to see from verse 16. Not only is everything flowing from Christ, that's our first thing, the source is Christ. Secondly, a healthy growing church requires every member to minister. A healthy growing church requires every member to minister. In other, in other words, we need an every-member ministry. The whole body is being held together by the contribution of every joint. Look again at verse 16. The whole body being fitted and, and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Each individual part of the church is involved. Each individual supporting joint. Each member is at work in the ministry of the church. And this would require that every member of the church is actively ministering, actively using their spiritual gift. This reminds me of 1 Peter 4.10, where Peter writes, as each one of you has received a spiritual gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Is the idea is that each of you have a spiritual gifting, a, a gifting that God has given you to be using and employing in serving one another in the church. And according to the proper working of each individual member, each individual part, the church grows. Which means that if any one of us chooses to disengage and to draw back from ministry and from fellowship and really fail to invest in ministry and fail to employ their spiritual gift to others and are sort of withholding their speaking of the truth to one another, then we will all suffer. We will all feel their absence. We are then not getting what God has given them to give to us for our mutual growth. Our church, if our church is to be the healthiest and if we're to be spiritually maturing, then we need every member ministering. Every member serving, every member speaking the truth in love to one another, every member employing their spiritual gift, every member concerned that we're all growing in Christ, every member thinking about how can I encourage others in Christ? How can I come along someone and build them up in the faith? They're about the work of the ministry. It's an every member ministry. And then finally, look third point or third thing to note from verse 16 and the, the final edification or the final building up is all in love notice how that ends the passage building up in love love really takes the prominent place in this passage it's notice it's not saying not in faith and not in wisdom or not in discernment or in good works all those things are good but growing up in love Churches to be built up in love. So growth in Christ's likeness is Paul's really, uh, his growth in, in Christ-like love is Paul's ultimate concern in this passage. It's his paramount 
concern here. It has been said that the ultimate criterion for the assessment of the church's growth is love. If you want to know if a church is growing, ask, is it a loving church? Is it growing in love? We should be asking that of ourselves. Are we growing in love? Because if we're not growing in love, what are we doing? I mean, I'll remind you of 1 Corinthians 13, which we read this morning. Paul writes, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but if I do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but I do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is so critical. It's the true test of whether a church is growing or not. The church must be growing up, being edified in love. And so this is our blueprint here in Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. It's Christ giving leaders to the church. The leaders then equip the saints. The saints then carry out the work of the ministry. And that is all the saints, all of them, each individual part. And the result is is that the church is being built up, edified in love. So we don't need to reinvent the wheel here. We don't need an innovative model of church growth. We need to give ourselves to faithfully following Christ's model here. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 provides Christ's model of ministry that really should activate every Christian. Call them into the ministry. Call them into serving. We could, we could call this an every member ministry. That's Christ's design. The leaders of the church are to be faithful in equipping the church. They're to set an example in their ministering. It's not like they're not engaged in ministry. They're setting example. They're the lead ministers. But they're also equipping everyone else, all of the saints, each individual saint, to be engaged in ministry, or what Paul refers to as speaking the truth in love. Another way we could say this is that every member ought to be faithful to fulfill the Great Commission. We are all commanded here to make disciples in the local church. And of course, the command in the Great Commission is to make disciples by evangelizing and then baptizing them and then teaching them to obey all the things that Christ has commanded. In other words, we all disciple others. We're discipling one another. We're discipling one another in the truth. We are all called to discipleship. This means we're investing in unbelievers, we're seeking to proclaim the gospel to them, but we're also speaking into the lives of one another in the church. We're discipling them by sharing truth with them, encouraging them. You see, an unhealthy church will be dominated by the 80-20 rule. Uh, The pastors and and leaders will not be equipping the saints. The the members will be leaving the ministry to the church leaders only. The saints will not be doing the work of the ministry, and this will lead to the death of the church. But for a healthy, growing church, we must all be active. In closing, in his book, Discipling, Mark Mark Dever gave a sobering description of many healthy churches. And I think this is practical. He wrote, Christians join churches and no one comes alongside them. There's no culture of single folks living with families to learn how to serve Christ. No culture of sharing the gospel with international students. There's little hospitality in the church. Only occasional invitations to Sunday lunch or Thursday night dinner. No men shepherding their wives. 
No wives or older women generally discipling the younger women. No biblical counseling among the members themselves. Counseling occurs only in the offices at the church. No thought of going to a church where the style of music may not be our favorite, even though it serves others. No thought of helping a family or a marriage in trouble. Little reaching out to people with a different skin color or accent. Few, if any, young men meeting up with other young men to study the scripture. End quote. That's true. I think all of these things describe an unhealthy church, and we should be focusing to do the opposite. Speak the truth to one another in love in just all of the ways we're together. Young men meeting up with other young men and to study the word. Young women pursuing older women to be invested in and to learn how to raise their children in a God-honoring way. Older men meeting up to study doctrine together and speak it into one another's lives. Men seeking to evangelize their co-workers and bringing them to the faith and then building them up and discipling them. All of these things should be just regular. And according to this passage, we all have a role. It's an every-member ministry. We all should be engaged in speaking the truth in love. And as we give ourselves to, to that end, we will grow up in love. Our church will be built up, will be strengthened, and will be preserved as a church as we follow Christ's plan. So to that end, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for Christ's plan for the local church. We thank you that he has gifted leaders to the church, and he's continuing to gift leaders, and that those leaders are to invest in the sheep, invest in the saints of the church so that they would be equipped for good works, that they'd be active in ministry. Lord, I pray that each one of us would, would see this truth, would see our responsibility to serve, and that we just find different ways. Whatever it is, we've all been gifted in different ways. Would you just prompt us in ways that we could minister? Maybe it's writing notes. Maybe it's taking people out for coffee. Maybe it's uh, just teaching a Sunday school class to children. Whatever it may be, I just pray that we would all be active in this ministry of serving one another, ministering to one another, and speaking the truth in love. And Lord, as we desire to take your word seriously and we desire to grow in sound doctrine, I pray that you would allow us to speak the truth in love. Uh, keep us back from becoming a hard, critical church that's uh, just ultimately concerned with doctrine and purity to the truth in such a way that just runs over people. But would we hold to sound doctrine, but in a way that is loving and that builds others up and is kind to others and that we would be courageous in the truth, uh, but also kind and gentle and patient when wronged. So help us to grow up into Christ as we know he is our example in all of these things. And we pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Our final song today will focus on that aspect of Jesus Christ working through.